Hi everyone, and welcome to this Freshfields podcast. I'm Alastair Mordant, and today's episode is the first in a new quarterly series looking at developments in foreign investment review. This is one of the fastest changing areas of global regulation and a major challenge for any business looking to grow across its borders. If you're interested in finding out more about these issues, as well as listening to this podcast, you can read our new report, Foreign Investment Monitor, which you'll find on our website at freshfields.com. The page includes a link where you can sign up to be added to our mailing list for future versions of the monitor. I'm delighted to be joined by three colleagues today who are going to help me analyse recent regulatory developments across the world and importantly provide some practical guidance on what companies should be doing in response. The first is Colin Costello, who recently joined our Washington DC practice and previously led the intelligence community's analytical support to the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS to you and I. Colin's inside knowledge of CFIUS is a huge asset, and it's great to have you here today, Colin. Great to be here. Next up, we have Ermelinda Spinelli from our Milan office. She advises on EU and Italian foreign investment and competition law issues. Welcome, Ermelinda. Thank you. Hi, everybody. And last but not least, Rocio de Troya from our Madrid office, an expert on EU and Spanish foreign investment and competition law issues. Thanks for joining us, Rocio. Hi, Esther. Very happy to be here. Okay, so let's kick things off. Colin, I'll start with you. When talking about foreign investment and national security, the first jurisdiction agency that usually comes to mind is the US and CFIUS. Can you please briefly explain what CFIUS is and what it does? Sure. So CFIUS is an interagency committee that's chaired by the Department of the Treasury, and it has eight other voting members, uh, which include the Departments of Energy, Justice, Homeland Security, Defense, State, uh, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is in the White House, uh, the United States Trade Representative in the Department of Commerce, uh, in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, my former employer, is an ex officio non-voting member that provides uh, analytical support to the committee uh, by performing a threat assessment for every transaction. Uh, and what CFIUS does is it reviews investments in U.S. businesses and certain real estate transactions uh, for risks to national security. Now, a common misconception about CFIUS is that it blocks deals. It doesn't block deals. Uh, its authority is to enter into mitigation agreements with the parties to mitigate the risks that it identifies. Uh, only the president has the authority to block or, or force a divestiture of a deal, but CFIUS can recommend to the president uh, to force a divestiture or to prohibit a deal. And CFIUS has a very high batting average in that respect. So when CFIUS recommends a block to the president, what parties generally do is they will instead abandon the transaction, or if it's a post-closing transaction, they'll begin negotiating an orderly divestiture order uh, to keep it quiet, as opposed to having it be blocked by executive order and made very public. Uh, filing remains voluntary for most transactions, but certain transactions now are subject to a mandatory filing regime, and CFIUS does retain the ability to review any non-notified covered transaction indefinitely. So there's a huge premium for getting it right when you're making a determination whether you're going to file a transaction. And of course, there's a new administration, uh, lots of discussion, speculation on how President Biden will deal with China. What are you expecting from a CFIUS perspective? Will deal making become easier or harder for foreign investors and in particular for Chinese investors? 
So Scythius is really one of those areas where there's probably going to be a significant amount of continuity between the Trump and Biden administrations, perhaps even a surprising amount of continuity, uh, and particularly on the issue of China. And the reason for that really is that the views on the risks posed by certain types of Chinese investments were really formed in the latter years of the Obama administration. And they certainly were hardened during the Trump administration, uh, but they're likely to continue under the Biden administration. This is going to make Chinese technology transactions uh, and, and deals involving large quantities of sensitive personal data, most likely they're going to be non-starters. There might be a greater willingness on behalf of the Biden administration to entertain discussions of mitigation in potentially lower risk Chinese transactions, uh, you know, rather than going immediately to a position of, of prohibition. But really, uh, you know, that difference is going to be on the margins. The major difference is going to be in process. Uh, CFIUS generally functions as a black box, right? This is sort of how it's portrayed in the media. It's the secret shadow chamber that never talks to the media and that renders classified decisions. That kind of fell apart a little bit in the latter part of the Trump administration. There was a great deal of committee business that ended up being discussed in the news. That's likely going to change. It's going to go right back to being a black box model of operation where there really isn't a great deal of communication with the media. And there's not really a great deal of communication about the decisions it makes. One of the areas you're also probably going to see some continuity that doesn't really have to do with China is in the drive to secure U.S. supply chains. This is going to have a large impact on non-Chinese deals, particularly because non-Chinese deals generally are going to involve more sensitive assets. They're going to involve assets like critical infrastructure, and you might see a greater willingness to use mitigation, even with a friendly acquirer, just because an asset might be particularly vulnerable. And of course, it's not just the US that's active in foreign investment screening these days. The likes of Canada, Australia have had active regimes for quite some time. But even beyond those better-known jurisdictions, there's been a real uptick in new regimes or expanded rules in the past few years. And I, I guess the EU is a case in point where there's a new screening regulation that came into force last autumn, and a number of member states have, have introduced new rules or have plans to do so soon. Ermelinda, turning to you, c can you tell us briefly about this EU regulation about what's it about and, and why was it introduced? Let me start with why. The new regulation was triggered by concerns regarding certain foreign investors seeking to acquire control of or influence in European firms. We're not talking about all European firms, but in very general terms, those whose activities have repercussions on critical technologies, infrastructure, input or sensitive information. And given the high degree of integration between the markets of different EU member states, there was a clear concern that a foreign investment could pose a security risk beyond the member state where the investment is made. And hopefully this short introduction makes it clearer what the screening regulation is about. Well, it is a piece of legislation which provides a screening framework and information sharing mechanism between member states and the European Commission in relation to certain investments by foreign investors in strategic sectors. In a nutshell, 
it provides an overview of foreign investments in the EU and provides the European Commission and other member states a voice. In other words, uh, we're talking about rights of information and the possibility to issue a non-binding opinion, which the competent member state or member states able to actually review the transaction will need to take into account. Okay, that's really interesting. And obviously, it's quite different, say, from the world of merger control, where the European Commission, um, where it has jurisdiction, effectively performs a one-stop shop decision-making role. Whereas here, it sounds as though decision-making still remains at the member state level. But as you say, there's this opportunity for coordination and information sharing. So if that's the case, what's been the practical impact that you're seeing on the ground and in ongoing deals? Well, first of all, we've seen new and expanded regimes. Uh, This happened in a number of EU jurisdictions and more are in the pipeline. This uh, evolution is not only linked to the new screening regulation, but it's fair to say that this is also strictly intertwined with the COVID concerns. We've also seen more information having to be provided upfront by the notifying parties. So notification forms have in some cases been changed almost overnight. And in order to facilitate information sharing with the Commission and other member states, there are some countries which have introduced an obligation of filing a bilingual notification form. So a filing needs also to be submitted in English, or there are also specific forms to be filled in precisely to facilitate information exchange at European level. On top of that, regulators have also de facto increased the number of post-notification questions which are made to the applicants. And in general, the review is even more more thorough than what it used to be. This has resulted with some exceptions in an increase in the timeline for approval. We've also seen certain member states issuing requests for information or indicating that they are minded to issue an opinion, not due to substantive concerns, but just to extend the applicable timeline because they feel they are in a time squeeze if compared to the timeline of other member states. And um, in this context, uh, we've definitely seen a few teething issues with the new regulation, and I'll focus on two. First, at least for the time being, uh, we've seen that there is no uniform approach between member states on what cases are notified to the European Commission and other member states. So what I mean to say is there's no uniform approach as to whether all cases are circulated to other member states or does the consultation mechanism only apply to those deals which are more likely to raise substantive concerns. And a second issue that we have seen, frankly, this is problematic, is that at least in some circumstances, there are no binding rules for the response time from national stakeholders 
when the European Commission or other member states ask factual information which is not in the possession of the notifying parties. This may result in a protracted suspension of the applicable deadline for clearance, which is frankly difficult to manage because it's really not in the hands of the parties. Thanks, Emelinda. Rothio, I want to bring you in here because um, Emelinda mentioned that um, obviously the decision-making isn't affected by this regulation, so the decision-making still remains at the member state level. And she also mentioned that we're seeing a number of new regimes coming online. From your perspective, which are the, the sort of the key member states, which are those that are most most active when you're advising clients on cross-border deals? And do any of them actually have, have real teeth? Yes, within the EU, what we have are different regimes in place in more than half of the EU member states. In our experience, the most active jurisdictions are Germany, France, Italy, Austria and Spain. As Melinda just mentioned, we are expecting new regimes to be put in place pretty soon in other EU countries. For example, Ireland, Netherlands and Denmark later this year. I guess there's also a, a former EU member, the UK, which, um, which is also introducing a, a pretty fundamental change in its own foreign investment regime with its National Security and Investment Bill, which uh, I believe is coming into force later this year. Absolutely, of course, the UK as well. And so as a result of these new regimes and also the expansion of the rules that Melinda was talking about, what we're seeing is more and more deals being caught in the different EU member states. And this, of course, has an impact on the deal execution risk and also, of course, timing. And this expansion of the rules um, that we're seeing within the EU are twofold. So on the one hand, we have an expansion on the number of sectors that are under the scrutiny of the EU uh, national authorities. The sectors are no longer limited to the usual suspects that Emmelinda was talking earlier about. So this would be, for instance, defence uh, activities, militarily related activities, critical infrastructure. But also we are seeing other sectors like healthcare, new technologies, activities relating with the sensitive data and others like food supply. And these are becoming more and more relevant uh, within these national regimes. So now when we are carrying out an assessment on whether foreign investment filings are required. We also need to take into account these new sectors and particularly take into account that these are national regimes and therefore we need to take into account national sensitivities. The second aspect that we're also seeing an, an expansion of the current criteria or the, the applicable rules is the identity of investor. So Colin was talking earlier about how CFIUS was um, a focus on Chinese investors and now the scope of the relevant investors is broadening to other non-Chinese investors. Well, that is also the case for the EU. And in fact, in some of the regimes in the EU, we're also seeing that some national regimes are expanding the definition of foreign investor, not only to non-EU investors, but also EU investors. Like in Spain, for instance, provided that there's certain thresholds are met, certain acquisitions by EU investors would also be caught by their regime. And so all of this in the context of 
regimes that are very broad, very flexible, result in a heightened risk of politicization of the review process of foreign investment during the foreign investment regime process. This leads to longer and unpredictable reviews, because of course, in during foreign investment review process, we have less prescriptive timetables than, for instance, we could have in merger control, where there is more legal certainty and the timelines are more established. What we're seeing is more scrutiny as well in some particular sectors as a result of COVID-19. What EU national authorities are doing and governments is carefully analyzing and looking into the future plans of the investor or the investor's intentions in relation to a given deal. In doing so, what they're trying to do is to grasp how the deal will impact the local economy and society. So we hear in the US of deals either getting blocked by the president, I know that's relatively rare, but it, but it has happened, or indeed getting withdrawn because it's likely the CFIUS would recommend that the president would block if, if necessary. Is the picture a similar one in Europe? Yes, it's pretty rare, but yes, there have been some cases. In fact, in the past few months, we have seen some deals being blocked by EU authorities. In France, Carrefour was being acquired by a Canadian convenience store chain. And after reviewing the deal from the foreign investment perspective, the government concluded that the proposed transaction was going to have an impact in France's food security and hence eventually decided to block the deal. Another recent example we have had in terms of uh, blocking decisions is as regards the German company IMST, a technology communications company. In the end, the government did be vital to German technological sovereignty, the activities of IMST, and also very important to the development of critical infrastructure such as uh, 5G and 6G. And actually, a prohibition by the Italian authorities was announced just a few days ago. It was about the proposed acquisition by a Chinese investor of a relatively small Italian company whose turnover was less than 30 million euros. And this was seen as strategic since the target operates in the supply chain for semiconductors. And apparently the prohibition was accompanied by negative opinions also from Sweden, the Netherlands and the European Commission under the EU screening regulation. That's really helpful. And it's interesting to hear the issues that um, at least some of the European governments has had. Colin, if I may, I, I guess you've had a bit of a ringside seat in your prior role supporting the intelligence community in CFIUS. And so just interested in sort of understanding a bit more of the types of issues and concerns that you see authorities having. Sure. So generally speaking, you're going to be able to divide risks that authorities look at into sort of two categories. Uh, the first are going to be threat-driven risks, where the focus is really on who the investor is or maybe who the investor uh, has business relationships with. And the second is going to be a vulnerability-driven risk, and that's going to focus on what they're investing in. Is it a piece of critical infrastructure? Is it a new technology? Is it something that is particularly or inherently vulnerable? 
what you're really seeing in terms of threat analysis is an increasing amount of convergence across the Atlantic. And, and this is the result in part uh, of a great deal more information sharing that's taking place in between jurisdictions. Uh, I had the great privilege in government to be able to work with a number of our allies in this area to come up with better or improved screening systems and to make sure that we were all operating from a common picture when it came to certain types of threats from certain categories of investment. So you're seeing a, a lot more commonality in terms of how jurisdictions understand, particularly investment coming from China and Russia. You don't have complete complementarity of interests as it relates to how to approach Chinese investment. But you are seeing an increasingly common approach that jurisdictions are taking when it comes to screening certain types of investments in certain industries. When it comes to vulnerability-driven risks, that's really where you see a lot of crossover in terms of, of concerns that jurisdictions have. Critical infrastructure is obviously the huge one, but as has been discussed today, a lot more interest is being paid to securing not only supply chains and technology, but ensuring a robust and innovative uh, industrial base domestically. That's a new phenomenon and certainly something I think that we can con will continue to see grow as more jurisdictions become more aware of what foreign investment might mean, what the implications of it might be long term for an economy's ability to compete in a technology driven global economy. This is definitely also what we have seen uh within the European Union, including with reference uh, to, so to speak, the national flavor of some of the concerns raised by the authorities, which all fall in a broader picture, as you said, Colin. For instance, uh, even if it's not officially set out in the applicable legislation, in our experience, some member states are particularly concerned by the risk of job losses. We've also seen that preoccupations related to the COVID emergency, even if it's not technically related to the transaction notified, have somehow informed the approach of certain member states, especially with reference to security of supply in strategic sectors, even when the target company is comparatively small. Okay, so this sounds to me as if it's a relatively complicated regulatory backdrop. It's sometimes somewhat unpredictable and potentially politicized. So how are you guys advising clients who are contemplating a cross-border deal? So with the expansion of CFIUS's jurisdiction and the creation of the mandatory filing regime and the increase in resources that CFIUS and CFIUS agencies are devoting to monitoring and enforcement, to looking at the markets and seeing what deals are out there, what's being notified, what's not being notified, the primary piece of advice is that the cost of getting your CFIUS analysis wrong can be extraordinarily high. As I said, CFIUS does retain the authority indefinitely to bring in any covered transaction even well after it's closed, and it retains all of the authorities it would have if the transaction were notified pre-closing. So that means that even if you've integrated the businesses, CFIUS can come in and force you to sign a mitigation agreement to tear apart certain parts of the businesses, potentially to rip and replace equipment. Uh, in an extreme situation, they can recommend that the president force a divestiture of your deal, at which point you're tearing apart your newly merged company. Uh, so the first step in any CFIUS analysis is making sure that you 
you're not falling under the mandatory filing regime. Because if you don't file a mandatory filing, you can be fined. That involves looking at the extent to which the transaction might implicate critical technology, uh, or if there's a certain amount of state ownership interest in the investor, if it implicates critical infrastructure or sensitive personal data. Uh, if there's not a mandatory filing, then you're thinking about what is the risk that I'm going to take on board if I don't file this transaction voluntarily? Uh, and that's really broken down into two categories. What's the risk of CFIUS identifying this and using its authorities to call it in? Uh, and if CFIUS does call it in, what is the risk of CFIUS imposing some type of commercially unacceptable mitigation terms on the transaction, something that might actually kill the value of the deal, or in an extreme circumstance, requesting that the president uh, force a divestiture of the transaction. So knowing how CFIUS thinks, how it will view your deal, how it understands risk, and particularly how it understands risk in these evolving areas that we've been talking about, critical infrastructure, supply chains, that's really important for spotting the types of non-obvious risks that might sort of sneak by and really put a landmine in your deal uh, later on that could come back and bite you if you're not doing your due diligence carefully at the outset. Yes, on top of Colin's advice, we are also advising clients to keep the foreign investment analysis under close review throughout the period that goes after signing up until closing. And the reason for this is that filing requirements, as we have seen, may change any time, both by the expansion of the rules, but also by the entry into force of new regimes. And so it is very important to ensure that there is the appropriate contractual flexibility to deal with these in-flight new filing requirements. And in order to do so, what we are advising clients is to, and we are helping them with uh, taking the appropriate risk allocation measures in all the deal documents to be able to deal uh, with any potential change of the regimes. It is also critical to carefully review long stop dates in deals where we think there might be sensitivities around foreign investment issues in order to deal with any potential filings that might be triggered as a result of these changes in regimes. On another note, a particularly tricky point concerns the fact that different from merger control regime, where the rule is that it is for the parties to propose remedies, and in any event, there is often room for negotiation. With reference to foreign investment, uh, typically countries are a black box where remedies might be unilaterally imposed at the end of the process. And as Colin and Rocio were saying, we need to help our clients navigate these issues by spotting potential difficulties sooner rather than later and keep an open dialogue with the authorities. Well, on that practical note, I see that our time's up. So I think that's a, a good place to finish. Uh, so thank you all for your insights. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've, I've learned a lot. I hope you have too. As I mentioned at the outset, if you're interested in further information on developments in foreign investment, then please visit our website at freshfields.com and look out for our next quarterly monitor and podcast on the topic. Thanks very much.